So again, let yourself sit in a way that's at ease and comfortable for this time. As people come back in, just a a few pieces of news before I start. Someone came up to me and asked how um, Spirit Rock had done in trying to meet the challenge grant for the last money of building the retreat center, Um, and we did, in fact. So the Kresge Foundation gave us all that money, and basically, um, no mortgage. It's there. It's just it's it belongs to everybody, and it's it's done, and it's fantastic. And with that, another nice piece of news. You know, the the just the day before Christmas, when or a few days before Christmas, the last Monday, when we collected money for Honduran refugee or Honduran relief. Um, we ended up collecting $2,800 that one evening, and my dear friend Christina Groff, who's been involved with that, um, brought it down to the main collection center for goods in um, San Francisco of blankets and tents and all the things that had been collected. And the big problem, as I said, was getting it back, getting it down to Honduras and Nicaragua. And they were just finishing loading two huge containers that were going to go on ships with. Um, each one 44,000, so 88,000 pounds of stuff. And the amount of money we gave them paid for two containers of stuff to go from San Francisco to uh, Honduras. So thank you incredibly for that. That's just great. And then I saw this cartoon. This is one more thing. I, I guess it was in the Oakland paper after Jerry Brown's became, you know, his honor, the mayor now. Um, and, and there was this thing in the Chronicle about the meditation that Sharon Salzberg taught at the beginning of Jerry Brown's kind of opening. This cartoon showed an Oakland police car um, cruising the streets, a little sign, Oakland police on it. Um, but on top of the police car, instead of the usual sirens, there were these meditation gongs. And one, one policeman said to the other, these aren't working as well as our old sirens. <laughs> so... Thank you, Jerry. It's great. So again, um, sitting comfortably. Um, If you could, would someone turn the fluorescent lights in the back off? There's one of those switches. Great. Appreciate it. So this evening being um, the Monday night, of the holiday to celebrate the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King, I wanted to speak um, at least in some measure connected with his birth and his um, incredible impact in our society, Um, not historically particularly, but rather to the topic of freedom that freedom of the heart that's possible. And in relationship to it, somehow the um, teachings of letting go. The Buddha in the um, sutras or the texts of Buddhism says at one point, just as all the great oceans of the world have but one taste, the taste of salt, so too do all the teachings of all the Buddhas that arise in the world. All of those teachings have but one taste, which is the taste of freedom. Freedom of the heart, um, freedom from entanglement with greed and fear and hatred and anger and delusion that's possible within every single human being, that freedom. One definition of enlightenment, and I don't speak about enli- use that term so often in teaching, although it's a very important um, thing to speak about um, because it's often confusing, but one uh, very central definition of enlightenment is this one, that who we are in this world is made of five um, processes of body and mind. They're called 
in the Buddhist teachings, the five um, skandhas, or generally it's called the five grasp skandhas. The process of form, which is body in the physical world. The process of feelings. The process of perceptions and views, the way we see things (coughs) in the world. The process of response or reactions to all the things that come. And then the process of consciousness, which knows our experience. Physical form, feeling, perception and memory, all the ways we see the world, reactions and responses, and then the consciousness that knows it. The difference between an ordinary person and an enlightened or liberated person is this. For an ordinary person, there is um, body and physical form that's grasped and held on to. There's feelings, my feelings. There's perceptions, my views and ways of seeing things. There's responses, my ideas and my way, the way things should happen. Um, and then there's consciousness, I'm the one that knows it. For an awakened person, there is form and experiences. There is feelings. There's perceptions and recognition of things. There's responses and there's consciousness. The piece that's missing is the my part, is the grasping part. And so liberation or freedom is not changing the experience of life, but a release of that grasping. And there's different kinds of freedom, as we know. There's the outer freedom that's terribly important and which we value in our lives, the freedom to act or speak or go as we will. And even more importantly, there's the inner freedom, the freedom of spirit. Um, Because we can't always do what we want and go where we would and have what we wish. And I was teaching this last month before going away in San Quentin in this group that probably become more a regular part of teaching there. And the guys were talking about how they weren't free there. It was really very clear. But they were also talking about their problems and addictions and the ways that they'd gotten caught up, not to speak of gotten caught. And they said, you know, (laughs) they said... uh, that, well, they recognized that they weren't free in there, but also that they weren't so free when they got out either. You understand? I remember seeing an old black and white movie of Oshiba Sensei. And Oshiba Sensei was the founder of Aikido in Japan, one of the kind of pinnacles of martial arts. And he was this tiny little guy, maybe four foot eleven or something like that, wearing black robes. And in this, in this um, video... He's, uh, he's already pretty old. He's in his, I don't know, 80s or something like that. The little master who'd started Aikido. And he's showing Aikido as the, the martial art that's being in harmony with the rest of the world. Um, and he demonstrates it by having uh, karate and judo and uh, various other martial artists, masters, black belts, incredible guys, come and attack him, first one at a time, you know, and they come and it's almost like one of those commercials where you bounce off this glass thing and nobody knows how. And then he says, come on, you guys, all at once, you know. And there's, there's like 15 people with sticks and, you know, going after him. And there he is in the center. They're all there. He's right there in the center. And and then a moment later, he's sort of standing by the side, smiling, and they're all on the floor. And they do that a few times, and he stands there smiling, and they're all on the floor. And we slowed the the projector down, like frame by frame. All right, what is happening here? And you couldn't quite see, but there, there they are, and here's he in the middle, and he's just kind of standing there, balanced. And then a frame or two later, it's as if... He disappears underneath them and stands next to them and smiles, and they're all, they've all fallen down. Um, and it's phenomenal to see it. Um, and it gives a kind of physical, you, you look at it and you get a physical sense of the possibility of freedom no matter what is happening. No matter what the world throws at us, there is a possibility of freedom. Now, in the Noble Truths of the Buddha, the beginning of his teaching, the Noble Truth of Suffering, the Buddha says, it's very simple. The amount of grasping we have, 
then that grasping can be running away from or holding on or trying to make things the way we want them to be. The amount of grasping is equivalent to, is exactly equal to the amount of suffering that we have. Not the amount of pain. Pain comes and goes. Pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and um, praise and blame, they come and go. Anybody not have that? Please raise your hand. Right? But the suffering that we have, which is different than that, is equal to the amount of grasping. You know, my teacher Ajahn Chah used to wander around the monastery when people were having a hard time. He'd look at them and he would say, um, are you suffering today? You know, kind of curiously questioning, teasing a little bit. And if you said no, he said, oh good, you're having a good day, very nice. You know, and if you said yes, he'd say, oh, must be very attached. And then he'd smile and kind of walk away. That was all. And in a way, it's that simple. It's like the idiot light on the dashboard. You know, if you're suffering a lot, oh, grasping, grasping, it's like that. So he said, if you let go a little, there'll be a little peace. And if you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, then your heart is free in any circumstances, free to come and free to go. And if you don't let go, then the world will teach you about letting go sooner or later anyway, won't it? I mean, we all know that. This is, suppose your computer, instead of giving the standard error messages, were to tell you about problems in haiku. So it's poetry speaking to you about its problems. A file that big, it might be very useful, but now it's gone. (laughs) First snow, then silence. This thousand dollar screen dies so beautifully. Or another error message. A crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. (laughs) Just one more question from your computer to you. Three things are certain. Death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred. So either we learn it, because that's the way the game works, or the world teaches us again and again. From Ajahn Sumedho, who's an abbot of a variety of monasteries in Europe and a wonderful friend and a disciple of Ajahn Chah, he said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and planning and trying you simplify your meditation practice down to two words, letting go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidharma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I tried to figure things out, understand things, make them better, I'd say let go, let go until the desire would fade. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, so we have only these simple poverty-stricken practices. There is a freedom in letting go, but the question then comes, how do we reconcile this with the need for commitment and dedication, especially on 
Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And many people in spiritual life, you know, ask this question. It's an important one to wrestle with in ourselves. What does it mean to let go? Is all attachment bad? Or is there such a thing as healthy attachment? The bond of a mother with a newborn child, or parents with their children, or healthy attachment to work or a dedication to justice. Is there a wise desire? So in what way does the meditation we do and Buddhist teaching speak of this letting go? Buddhist psychology speaks of how the heart meets this moment. Do we meet it with greed and grasping? Do we meet it with aggression and judgment? Do we meet it with delusion? With fear and anger and lack of forgiveness? You know, all those stories of he did and she did and how it should be. Is that how we meet the moment? In the course of a lot of years of working as a psychologist, psychotherapist, uh, actually thinking about this couple that I worked with, worked with a number of couples, including those in the middle of divorce. And this couple came in and there was been lots of anger for that year leading up to this divorce. She did and he did, and you know how the stories build up. And I listened to it and we worked with it for a while, and then I became kind of curious. Um, how was the anger helping them? How was it serving them? Because they kept it going for some reason. And I was especially curious because um, in my own family, it was the main way my parents made contact. They were apart a lot, and then when it was time to make contact, that was the way they connected, was getting angry at each other. And I said, well, suppose you let go of the anger, not to say that it's bad or there isn't justification or whatever you want to say, but you know, suppose it weren't here, what would be there? And immediately as they sat and got in touch, they realized that the anger was kind of the glue in this year of fighting, and without it they would be stuck with loss and loneliness and fear and grief. And they'd have to really look at the questions, you know, what should we do? How do we do this um, and honor the kids? And what happens with the money in an honorable way? Instead of you're wrong and you're right, there would be kind of a letting go. And then from that place of loss or grief or sadness, well, what's the best way to proceed if we're going to do this? So Buddhist psychology speaks about how we meet the moment. Do we meet it with aggression and fear and lack of forgiveness? Or the other possibility, does the heart meet the moment with openness, with clarity, with compassion, with a kind of bow and say, yes, this too is what's given. You know, Rumi's image of the guest master, the guest house, this, this life is a guest house. Meet each guest at the door honorably. And as we sit in meditation, we're training this presence in our human life. Mindfulness is that deepening respect for what is, a bowing to a kind of sacred presence. And it's not just for what's difficult or what's lovely in ourselves but what's difficult and lovely in the world around us. It's the same. How does the heart respond to the weapons sales that we still do in the hundreds of billions of dollars worldwide or to the hunger of so many people on the earth still? Child abuse, the endemic racism of our society, the economic injustice, the warehousing of people in prisons. Or this brother David Stendelrost, who's a good friend, was circulating this letter to a number of people trying to mobilize some consciousness. No one, including the U.S. State Department, denies what UNICEF, the United Nations Infants and Child Fund, has discovered, namely that nearly 500,000 Iraqi children have died since the Gulf War as a direct result of our policies. You know, so it's one thing to protect our oil, but at what cost? 
And what do we do? How do we meet the moment of beauty or of suffering and injustice? And what about how difficult it is to change things? Because you've tried, haven't you? And it's very, very difficult. A first step in this sense of freedom is not even trying to change things. The first step is this quality of witnessing, of presence. So my good friend Robert Hall, who teaches here as part of the teacher collective here, who's been a psychiatrist and a kind of leader in the field of body work and meditation and psychotherapy for many years. When I first met Robert, I was a new, newly trained psychologist. This is 23 years ago, something like that, 25 years ago. And um, I told him, I was a little in awe because he'd founded the San Francisco Gestalt Institute and trained with Fritz Perls and done all these things. He was quite well known even at that time. And I told him, I said, you know, Robert, I've gotten through my training to really be able to see the source of people's difficulty. I understand their problems and I see the structures from family and things that make it, make it so. But I still haven't figured out how best to really help them to get out of it or change that. And he said, well, I don't do that. I said, you don't? What do you do? And he said, I don't try to change anything. I sit with people and I work together with them to be with what is true. That simple. And when we are with what is true, what change needs to take place comes out of that ground of truth. For Martin Luther King, he says, the approach of love and nonviolence and I would say that mindfulness is really a way of being aware nonviolently of our own body and mind and of the things around us, being present without violence, without reaction. This approach of love and nonviolence does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they have. And when it reaches the opponent, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. So the first step is simply a deepening capacity in this human life to be present and to bear witness to the sorrows and the beauty and the injustice and the love and all that makes our life. And to do so where we are, to be mindful and compassionate, is to live more and more in the reality of the present, in this present moment. Because all of the past and all of the future, all the past is gone, right? And where's the future? Actually, all we have is the present moment. The only place where you can love or care for something is here. Otherwise, it's a fantasy in the future or it's a memory. So beginning to live in the reality of the present, to be with what's true, and then tend to what needs to be tended. But what about direction, dedication, commitment? Zen Master Dogen says, Speaking of enlightenment, when you are in a boat on the ocean, it seems round or circular and nothing else. But the ocean is really neither round nor square, and its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. Only for a moment, for our eyes in that boat, does it seem circular. All things are like this. We see them only from a moment's perspective. And so we shouldn't get attached or grasped to the way that we think things are, because it will change in yet another moment. 
So how do we find direction? One traditional answer, which is the Buddhist, um, one of the great Buddhist um, underpinnings of spiritual life, is the direction that's set by the Bodhisattva vows. And the Bodhisattva vows basically say that no matter how circumstances change, up or down, joy or sorrow, round or square, in all the changing circumstances, the heavens and hells and everything in the universe, I will set my heart in the direction of compassion to care for all beings, my actions, my words, and my deeds. Even if the sun should arise in the west, that will be the direction that I will face. I will set my heart to the benefit and the liberation of beings. Sentient beings are numberless, is the first of these bodhisattva vows. I vow to awaken them all. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to release them all. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it or attain them all. And in certain Zen centers and temples and places, one would say this every day or every sitting or at every meal. And it becomes like a compass or a rudder to set the heart's direction in the rough waters of life. What sets our direction? I'd like somebody to mention on that day that Martin Luther King tried to give his life serving others. I'd like somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to say I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. I just want to leave a committed life behind. How to do this? What direction do we set? I mean, there are all the different ways we can respond. You can write letters and call Congress, or maybe you, you know, a more enlightened direction would be to turn off the news at certain points these days, you know, or demonstrate, or or serve, or, or whatever it is, or plant your garden. But what we have to do is ask, seeing the truth of the world, is the way we are living what our hearts uh, most deeply values? Will this direction be of benefit? And in the face of injustice or beauty, the creativity of our lives in small or large ways, what is our commitment? What do we want our life to be about? And again, what Martin Luther King spoke about was not what you choose, what particular thing, because each of us has a gift, an ability, with words or with people or with things or with the earth. But how we proceed, always be sure that you struggle with the weapons of consciousness. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. For if you succumb to the temptations of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. Whatever you choose to do as you press for justice, for care, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the weapon of love. My experience, and it's 
partly in my own marriage, being a parent, guess in all the kinds of relationships, being a community member and a member of the society, that to love requires a lot of letting go. You know what I mean? To respect another requires a lot of letting go. And to be free requires a lot of letting go. To forgive requires a lot of letting go. To let people be as they are and then respond not from trying to change them, but for what we most deeply care about. Again, it's like that image of, o- I- of O-sensei, of the Aikido master, Oshiba-sensei. Now, it's important to act. It's important to plan. It's important to take responsibility, to be committed. Those are important. But how does that fit together with the freedom of letting go? The central theme of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most revered book in all of Hinduism in some ways, in the central theme, Bhagavad Gita, when God, who appears in the form of Krishna, is speaking with Arjuna. And Arjuna asks how to find freedom in the midst of this <coughs> impending battle and all kinds of terrible circumstances. Krishna tells Arjuna the, the secret. He says, act. Act with the best intent you can. Act from your heart. Act without attachment to the fruits of your actions. But that's where you find the freedom. The freedom isn't how it's going to come out, because that's not up to you, is it? To act without attachment or without grasping the fruit of your actions. It's again like the Bodhisattva. We turn our hearts in the direction of our values and proceed step by step. So it's the letting go of me and mine and how it's supposed to be and acting because it's the right thing to do and we know it. And so this is the standing up for what's true. Again from Martin Luther King. He says, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. Not to avoid pleasure, avoid pain and get pleasure, but really to stand up for what we value. And there is a letting go. It's not up to us what the result will be. This letting go shouldn't be confused with indifference or not caring or dismissing of the world. It's the commitment of being present without greed and grasping, without aggression and hatred, with a compassionate and open heart. Alan Watts. The art of living is neither careless drifting on one hand nor fearful clinging to the past and the known on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, in regarding it utterly new and unique, and having the mind open and the heart wholly responsive. This kind of letting go I heard a story this week. I heard it actually from a tape I was listening to of Lawrence Vanderpost, who I admire a lot, quite remarkable old man. And he told it of um, his African nanny who had told it to him. She was from the tribe of the Bushmen in the southern part of Africa. And she told it to him when he was five years old and I don't know, 1908 or something like that. Um, 
And I love this story, it's, so I'll tell it. And it's one that may be familiar to you in some form or other, because there's a version in Thailand and a version in Latin America. It's one of those stories that's part of the human life. It seemed that there was a man who wanted the good things in life, and he was, a bit, he was an honorable man, although a bit ambitious. And he gathered to him by his hard work the most wonderful cattle that could be found. And cattle was the wealth there. And these cattle were the most wonderful because they were half black and they were half white, which symbolized the wholeness of the world. And he had this herd of black and white cattle, but he was afraid someone would steal the cattle. So he went into the forest. There was a big, deep forest there that was named Dukaduk-Duk was its name. And the reason that the forest was named Dukaduk-Duk was because it was so dark and so scary that Dukaduk-Duk was the noise your heart made as you went into that forest. <laughs> and he found in the forest Dukaduk-Duk a beautiful clearing, and there he brought his cattle that represented the most beautiful thing he could have, this wholeness. And he would milk them, you know, and care for them, and then go and sell the milk in the market. But one day, the cattle stopped giving milk. Their udders were dried up. One morning, he couldn't believe it. He thought, well, maybe I haven't fed them right or enough. And he got all this wonderful food for his beautiful cows and fed them. They ate it. Next night came the morning, udders were dry, no milk. Well, it's not the food. So, all right, two nights had passed, try once again, third night, you know how these things are. This time he decided to stay up. And he stayed up and partway through the night as he was getting sleepy, all of a sudden this beautiful light came into the grove in Dukaduk forest. And a rope came down, this beautiful rope came down from heaven, and down the rope came these heavenly maidens. And they were carrying milking baskets. They actually milked with baskets in Africa because they were so good at weaving baskets that they could weave it to hold water. These wonderful baskets. And these beautiful maidens came, and he had the, he had the best cows, cows ever. Right? And they were the cows of wholeness. They, the, even these divine beings wanted the milk of wholeness. We all want that. So they would milk the cows and then they would go back up, laugh and so forth. And he sprung up as they were going back up and grabbed the last one and pulled her down. And because he had, um, the rope disappeared. And um, he, he saw her and he fell in love with her. He said, this is fantastic. I thought my cows were good. This is, really, <laughs> this is even better. <laughs> Ah, and he begged her to stay with him and the cows and marry him, and she did. But she married him. She said, there's one thing you must never do. You must never look in my basket. This is the story that's everywhere around the world. You must never look in this basket. And so they, they lived happily and had a child, and they all the kind of... Benevolent things that can happen, happen to them. And he would go out hunting, and she would do the things that women did in that culture. And one day he came back, and she wasn't there. She was out collecting something in the forest. And he thought, you know, what could it hurt to look into that little basket? What, I mean, what's, what could it matter? She said not to, but what could it hurt? So he kind of edged over to the basket and he looked at it and he thought, should I? She said not to, but I, he couldn't let go of that thought. He couldn't. And so he opened it and he started to laugh. Because as he looked in there, there was nothing inside. Mm. And she came home. And she looked at him and she knew something had happened. His expression had changed. And she could tell he'd done something. He probably had looked in the basket. And she said, you know, you're different. You know, you're not treating me the same way. I feel like you, you must have looked in the basket. Tell me the truth. And he looked at her and he said, what was the big deal about? 
I looked in the basket. Yeah, you said not to, right? I looked in the basket. There was nothing in there. And her face fell. And she said, I love you, but I must take our child and go. And she walked out the door and disappeared and never returned. And he learned that she left. Or maybe as she left, she told him, it's not so much that he looked in the basket. She told him as she was going out the door, betrayed her in that way. But what he didn't see in the basket, for she said, you know what was in the basket. Remember when you first saw me in that dark night with the rope coming down, beautiful night in the forest, the basket was full of starlight, which is the light from where I came and you couldn't see it and I must leave. And that's the end of the story. Now I have to figure out a way <laughs> fitting this story into tonight's Dharma talk. <laughs> I wanted to tell an African story. So I was thinking of Martin Luther King. Um, and part of the way that it fits for me is that what he didn't see, what was invisible to him, was the most important thing of all, which was that starlight or that spirit that gave beauty and meaning and radiance to her. And she had to leave not so much because he betrayed her and opened the basket, but because he really didn't see what she most deeply loved and valued. And I think in a way, what, um, at least the way the story connects for me, is that what Martin Luther King was able to do was to stand up and speak about starlight. He was able to stand up and speak about something that wasn't visible, but was so beautiful and so important. It was like air or water. It was something so central to human life that thousands and millions of people heard him and said, yes, he sees something that I didn't even see in the basket before. So we're speaking tonight about freedom and the freedom of the heart. And the freedom of the heart means we have to let go some of the time. He couldn't let go of that wanting to look in the basket. It means to be without grasping. But to be without grasping doesn't mean that we don't love and care. If you grasp after money, if you grasp your lovers, your partners, your children, your own body, you know what happens? You suffer, and so do they. It brings fear, struggle. I mean, do your children like to be possessed? Try it. See how they like it. How about your partner? And it would presume somehow that we're in control. Security is mostly a superstition, said Helen Keller. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. We're not in charge in that way. We're not in control. There is great beauty in the heart when we have a sense of confidence and trust that we can let go and simply take each moment as it comes and act with care and compassion and respect as the world shows itself to us. And you'll know what to do when you're quiet, when you listen, when that starlight is available to you, you know what to do. They talk about it in the Tao Te Ching, the Tao is invisible. It can't be seen and yet it fills every cup and every stream and every ocean. And the wise person knows the flow of the Tao and uses it because it flows through all things. Freedom is an openness, a graciousness. The freedom of heart is a compassion 
that Martin Luther King showed, even in the midst of difficulty, a graciousness. And it also realizes, again, that nothing good comes from grasping. The basic teaching of Buddhism, said Suzuki Roshi, is the teaching of transiency or change. That everything changes is the truth for each existence in each moment. No one can deny this, and all of the Buddha's teachings are condensed within it. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. And because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. Somebody asked my teacher Ajahn Chah, you know, how they should study the Dharma. And he said, I don't know, I'm not sure. And I said, what do you mean, aren't you some master? And he said, that's my teaching to you, not sure. (laughs) Suzuki Roshi said, all of Buddhist practice can be summed up in three simple words, not always so. So letting go trusts this world and loves anyway, trusts the changing of the seasons, the knowing when it's time to do something and when it's time to sit still. It's in us if we're receptive and silent and listen. You know, in Carl Jung's psychotherapy or in his Jungian analysis, if people came into him and said, you know, I'm having a great success or my paintings are going to be in a big gallery or I was just given a raise and made manager, all these things, he would kind of yawn and go to sleep and say, oh, that's nice, thank you. But if somebody came in in great difficulty, you know, and said that they were just about to lose their job, you know, or their home had burned down or their, you know, it's not that he wished that on them or that their doctor said there might be some serious problem or or some unexpected thing had happened with all their money, then he would sit up in this chair and get very interested. And, and, and later wrote about it, and he said that was the place where something actually interesting began to happen in these people's lives. Can you hear the difference? So letting go knows this. There's a freedom in us that's not trying to control the way things are but starts to sense what wants to grow, what's beautiful, what we can nourish, what it's time to let go of. And close your eyes for a moment. You don't have to move or change posture. A few reflections. Where in our life are we not so free? you can know in a moment. And what does that ask of us? What truth wants to be accepted? What letting go or steadiness of heart is asked? In our bodies, in relationship, in work, in the community, And what in the world around us is not free that asks our response? Our seeing of the truth, our presence, or maybe our letting go, something old, so something new can come through us.
What is it time to let go of so something new can be born in our life or in the life of the world around us? Just simple reflections, a listening to the heart. This meaning of freedom is instinctive, intuitive. You can't really teach someone to be free any more than you can teach someone how to love or love for them or let go for them. We all learn what it means to open, to let go, to love. We know it in our body. We know it in the moment that presents itself. Everybody's life has this amazing plot with unexpected turns. It does. Birth and joy and loss and sorrow and success and catastrophe and pain, they'll, they'll come to everybody. It does. And so it's more the direction that we face with the heart. How does this heart meet our life? Is there a freedom that we can find and that we can bring to others? My daughter gave me this the other day. Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, angry, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Thank you. I see our coming to sit in meditation as not so much getting something. This is more the dump, the place to let go of fear and tension and the stories and the things we hold on to, so that we come back to that place of beginner's mind, of openness, where we can trust in being, trust the strength of the heart to be present no matter what, because it can be with us, with others in the world. Again, from Martin Luther King. This was after the church was bombed and people killed. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. The strength of the heart to be present no matter what, to accept the first noble truth that there is loss and change and aging and suffering and death, as much as there's beauty and joy and birth, it's the way life is. And that what's asked of us is not to grasp, but to enter this with a spirit of freedom. I was interviewing people for a uh, chapter in this new book I've been working on, Part of the questions I was asking was about people's best meditation experiences, different teachers and things. This person talking about, oh, the day this sweetness came into my meditation I'd never felt before. I looked out the window and saw these three young birch trees, and they were like my family. I could feel myself go and stroke their smooth bark, and I became the tree touching myself. Meditation filled with light, and I cared for them like my children. And I rested for days in this beautiful peace and body floating and mind empty and the insights of life, this small sense of self, this petty landlord running around squabbling over something it doesn't even own. I saw how perfect it is if we just let go 
and care for it as it is, the stream of life. I saw the whole idea of spiritual renunciation as a kind of a joke, trying to make oneself let go of ordinary life and pleasures. In fact, nirvana is so open and joyful, is so much more than any of the small pleasures we grasp after. You don't renounce the world, you gain the world. Kind of a letting go. The letting go is into life, not away from life, but into life itself. One more passage from Martin Luther King. I believe that the unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And that is why right temporarily defeated is in the end stronger than evil triumphant. I believe in this. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I don't know what your task is in this world and what the particular gifts you've been given and what garden you're asked to plant, what things you're asked to give back or care for or see to, but it's something. And of course it starts with your own body and your own love of yourself and your own family and community, but it might also be the children in Iraq or the people in prisons. You'll know. But I hope that you can do it from that place that remembers the starlight, that remembers the spirit behind all things, the spirit that pushes up those little green plants in the cracks of the sidewalk, that breathes us, that turns the seasons, that really makes love with all things. And trust that and live in that, because that's the source of freedom. It's not what we do or have or grasp, but it's a freedom in the heart and spirit. Let's sit for a minute, please. Just a moment, we'll end with a simple chant, a couple of tiny reminders. Please be really careful, especially because it's dark in the way you drive and drive around the circle because it's dangerous to turn left. Also be careful where you park, not to park along the highway out there. Please come in here. It's important for us and for the county and being good neighbors that we carpool and kind of keep our promises and care for the environment. Um, it's a pleasure to see you all and to be back. I know for those who come regularly, last week you had Ed Brown, who is a wonderful teacher, and you had Lama Paulden, and she's also terrific, and Wes, and felt like you were all in, you know, good hands while I was away. Happy for that. Um, So thank you, and... Hopefully you can take something from your own meditations tonight or as you sit and take time to stay connected with your heart during the week and make something beautiful of it in the world. The chant is just the sound ah, which is the seed syllable in Sanskrit for letting go or opening. It's considered the first sound in life 
and the last sound, ah. And we'll just sing ah for a few minutes and go out into the rainy evening. (coughs) Ah, ah, add harmony. Ah, 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 So bring your beautiful spirit back into the world. Thank you. See you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.